Welcome once again to the Foundry Church podcast. My name is Joseph. I am the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. We are so delighted that you have chosen to spend a little bit of time with us this week. It is week one of our Easter 2023 series called The Escaping Goat, uh, in which we are taking a look at the scapegoat ritual in ancient Israel and what it was then and what it sort of means to us now and sort of how it influences the way that we think about things. Um, A big word came up in uh, the the sermon this week. The word uh, in English is atonement or to atone. And uh, that's a big, big word, especially around this time of year as we're approaching a Good Friday and uh, remembering the death of Jesus on the cross and then, you know, pushing towards the joy of Easter Sunday uh, with the resurrection of Jesus and what all of that means for our sin um, and for our humanity and for our eternity and all that stuff. It's such a big, big topic. Um, Honestly, it's something I'm not sure we're going to be able to really get through in four-week series. Uh, But we hope that we will get through uh, enough of it and in such a way that it can be a benefit to you spiritually. We hope you'll be with us for the, the whole journey. And we hope that you enjoy week one of The Escaping Goat. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I think that's the perfect bumper for an Easter series. (laughs) I'm so very glad you're here, whether you're joining us in person or online. My name is Seth, and this is The Foundry, where we're all about a better you and a better world. Today, we begin our brand new series that we're calling The Escaping Goat. (laughs) This is our Easter series, and I thought it was a funny title, so... Despite having a, a, what I think is a hilarious title, um, we're going to be looking at and covering some thoughts and ideas that will probably be a little bit different than what you might be used to, like in an Easter series. Uh, I think it's going to be good. Actually, I think it's going to be really good. Uh, it may be a bit challenging. It, it may cause you to wrestle a little bit. But I do believe that if you will allow yourself to be open to a few of these ideas, that are not new ideas by any means, that it will have a fairly profound effect on your faith and your relationship with God. So this whole series is going to be tied to, connected to this ancient Israelite practice known as the ritual of the scapegoat, right? So we're going to be digging into this practice to see what it was about for them then and what that means for us now. Okay, so let's start with the term scapegoat, scapegoating as we know it. What is scapegoating? What does it mean to scapegoat? What if I am scapegoated? What does it mean? Basically, it's, it's essentially like reassigning blame, isn't it? It's when a person or a group of people are blamed for the mistakes of others. Well, <clears throat> we see this all the time in the world we live in, don't we? Like we see this all around us, like when somebody else is pointing the finger at someone other than taking the blames for ourselves, and other saying it's their fault, not ours. They're the cause of the issues or the problems. Uh, we talk about, we'll talk about this more in the, in, in the series later. Uh, but here's the thing I've realized about scapegoating, and maybe you have as well, is that scapegoating others like, kind of makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? It's always easier to cast the blame. It's always easier to say they're the problem than it is for us to do some self-examination to acknowledge that we might, in fact, be the cause of the problem. It's always easier. It makes me feel better. 
It makes me feel a bit superior when I know it's their fault, not mine. Right? Now, this, this concept of scapegoating, it's not new. Obviously, it's been around for a while. In the book of Leviticus, we find the ritual of the scapegoat. It's a part of what was called the Day of Atonement. Uh, you may have heard it called Yom Kippur. It's one of the most important days on the Jewish calendar, still practiced today. So real quick, before we get into like, the actual ritual itself, we do need to be mindful of the, like, the premise in which this uh, Leviticus 16 sets, right? Uh, you have to remember that this is coming on the heels of the people who were in slavery in Egypt. They've been set free. God has rescued them. They're now wandering through the desert, and God is using this desert time to undo and, and redo some of the like thought patterns, the patterns of behavior, the, the practices that they had picked up in Egypt. So the book of Leviticus is kind of like this manual of regulation. It's geared toward the priest, the Levites who are operating on God's behalf, trying to transform this group of people into God's nation and how he designed for them to live and, and to function. So that's the general setting, okay? So in chapter 16 of Leviticus, we see what's called the Day of Atonement, and the purpose of the Day of Atonement was to completely atone for or cover the yearly sins of the community. So in chapter 16, it starts with like God giving Moses these instructions to give to his brother Aaron, who was the high priest, about what Aaron must do to like get everything ready, to prepare the, to, to enter into the holy place. Then in verse 7, it says this, then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other, lot, uh, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Okay? That's like what we're told. So the basic premise is the priest takes two goats, one offering that is a sin offering for the Lord, the other is chosen to be the scapegoat in order to make atonement for the people, and then it's sent into the wilderness. And the way that they choose the goats, which one will be which, is by drawing lots. That's, that's what we know. Now, a few thoughts about this, because there's, there's a ton of stuff in just these couple little verses. And I, some of it I don't even know what to do with, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's really interesting, at least to me. Hopefully it will be for you. So the first thing is this, like seven, seven things, six that are like we'll go through and then one that we're going to like hang out on. The first thing is they draw lots. Okay, th this to me is, is, <laughs> is really fascinating. In order to determine which one dies and which one is the scapegoat, they, they just cast lots. Like in this very, in this, in this like ritual that is like very well laid out on almost everything else. And if you look through the book of Leviticus, it's a lot of, here's exactly how to do this. But then in this moment, they're like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It just seems a bit odd to me. I don't know. I don't know what you do with that. I don't have a point. I just find it interesting. Number two, uh, the goat that is selected for God is offered as a sin offering. Now, what they meant as a sin offering is probably not what we mean when we think about sin offering. What we like maybe think about as a sin offering is actually more of what, you, what they would call a guilt offering. The sin offering is more like a purification offering, right? It has to do with atonement, but the sins that are being atoned for were usually a matter of ritual purity more than they were some sort of moral sin, okay? So the primary purpose of this offering is not to like cover the sin as much as it is to purify yourself in order to enter into the presence of God. 
which would make sense because it's the day of, of atonement. So you're preparing yourself to go into the presence of God in order to be atoned, right? It's the same way that you would take a shower before you go on a date. It's, this is the spiritual equivalent of that thing, if that's helpful. I thought it was a, a good analogy. Number three, <clears throat> the goat was selected, that was selected to be the scapegoat. Verse 10 says, the scapegoat was used for making atonement, okay? The word for atonement here in the Hebrew text is the word kafar, which literally means to cover specifically with bitumen, figuratively make amends, pardon, release, cancel, appease, forgive, or reconcile. 3B, what is bitumen? What is bitumen? Well, bitumen is this naturally occurring liquid form of like asphalt. It's the semi-solid state of petroleum, like tar or pitch or something. Like, this actually comes up from the ground. It's in kind of a natural resource. And in fact, it's mentioned a couple other times in the Bible. Like if you think about in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, it says they, used the, they took the stones and they covered it with tar and pitch for mortar. Right? This is, this is bitumen. That's what they're talking about. In fact, most scholars believe that much of Babylon was built using bitumen. Or even if you think about the story of Moses and his mother going all the way back to like pre, pre-Egypt stuff. Um, mother, took, uh, mother took Moses, put him in the, in the basket, put him in the Nile. But it says it covered, she covered it with tar and pitch. This is bitumen. She covered this. It helped to keep it protected, didn't let the water in, kept him safe, and it was able to float. Right? So the mother atoned the basket. It, it's really interesting to me that this idea, that from, the word, uh, that from this word uh, that literally means to cover with bitumen, we've developed our word for atonement, right? which I kind of get because it means to cover, and that's what we understand atonement to mean, like cover our sin. But also I can't help but think based on this definition that it also might have something to do with joining things together, like the bricks that they use to build the buildings. Or, or maybe it, it has something to do with like sealing and protecting something. Kind of makes me wonder if, if we need to expand our idea and our thoughts concerning the idea of atonement. That it's not just covering something up, but actually it's actually bringing things together. I don't know. We don't have time for all that today. Number four, the word for scapegoat. This raises a bunch of questions that I don't really have the answer for either, but it's worth pointing out, and we'll raise them anyway. The foundry. Better you, better world, better questions. Yeah. So the word in Hebrew that's translated as scapegoat is the word, I didn't send this in, I'm sorry, is the word Azazel. Azazel. Now, Azazel is surrounded by like kind of a, a bunch of mystery and a whole lot of opinions. There are four primary, primary thoughts as to what the word Azazel means, okay? Number one is it means the goat of departure, the scapegoat, the escaping goat, right? That's why in your most Bibles, it will say the scapegoat. Some Bibles, depending on the version you have, will, will translate it as Azazel. Number two is that it's a geographical location, like a rugged cliff. It's, it's the edge of something. You throw it off. That's why in some practices, they throw the goat off a cliff. Number three is an abject noun, meaning uh, abstract noun, meaning destruction or the entire removal. Or number four, it's the name of a demon desert. Desert demon. Yeah, I said that right. Desert demon. Azazel is the name of a desert demon. Believe it or not, there's a fair amount of people that lean towards this idea being maybe the one way to look at it. The thought is that the text says the first goat is for the Lord, that is Yahweh. Yahweh is a spirit being. 
The second goat is for Azazel. If the first goat is for a spirit being, then it would be fitting for the second goat to be for a spirit being as well. Also, the thought is you're sending, if you're placing your sins on this goat and you're sending it into the wilderness or into, to, you're sending it out to Azazel, then, and Azazel is the demon, then you're sending like the sin back to its source. Right? You're, you're sending evil back to where it came from. Um, in fact, the, there's this ancient uh, Hebrew book known as the Book of Enoch, uh, Hebrew apocalyptic religious text that refers to the character of Azazel. Enoch would have been the great-grandfather of Noah, so there's all of that as well. So when the text says the goat that is sent into the wilderness or desert, and the wilderness was understood at this time as like one of the abodes of the demons... So that would all kind of like connect in this way of thinking. And if you think about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and the desert, who was he tempted by? Again, I don't have an answer here. I don't have a preference. I just find it interesting and it gives us a lot to think about. Number five, this one's brief and it's worth mentioning, I think. When the goat is released into the wilderness, we're not told much else. It's just, here, you let it go. Maybe it lives, maybe it dies, maybe it goes on some sort of great adventures, maybe the demons get it, I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it starts a whole new life. We don't know. Uh, that would actually be a great kid's book, I think. The Escaping Goat, it just like, they send it out and it takes off to like Paris and flies around the world or something, that'd, that'd be fun. The text just said it goes out into the wilderness. And, and from my experience with goats, I, I kind of picture this to be a little bit humorous. They go through this whole ceremony, like the serious thing, and they're placing the sins on the goat, and they kill this goat to purify, and it's this day of atonement, it's a big deal, and then they're like excited because they're walking the goat to the wilderness, and they're cheering, and they're happy because that's been taken from me now, I'm now free, all this stuff, and then they get to the edge of the wilderness, and they release it, and it just like stands there, <laughs> right? And my experience with goats is that like they never do what you want them to do, like they just... And so even if one of my goats gets out of its pen, it doesn't really go anywhere. It will just like eat my plants that I don't want it to eat and then wait for more food. It'll go back to its pen. Right? So I picture them getting excited and setting it free and then it just walks back. Maybe that's why they took it to the edge of a cliff eventually. They started that in 70 AD and throwing it off the cliff because they were like, we're tired of it coming back. Like just get rid of it. Like we're, we're done with this thing. So uh, number six um, is... Like, how did they do this? How, how did this practice actually happen? Well, after the high priest had done the ritual purification, the sin offering with the first goat, it was really simple, really basic, not much to it, but essentially he would just place his hands on the head of the goat and then, like, publicly confess the sins of the nation, which seems pretty simple depending on, like, the attitude of the goat on that day. Number seven, and this is, like, kind of where we're going to spend a lot of time, one of the big questions where does this idea and this practice come from? This is a good question. Um, some seem to think that this practice predates Israel, that essentially other nations or other people groups were doing this sort of thing. They adopted that into their practice and then like, adapted it to like, fit the requirements for God or something. Some people believe that um, this practice was original to Israel. And the people who believe this practice was original with Israel make the case that this story is like a retelling of the story of Joseph. I'd never heard this before. I found some really interesting stuff this week that I want to share with you. Um, so let's start with this, the story of Joseph. You may be familiar with it, but just in case, and this will also help us to highlight a few things. 
Story of Joseph, Genesis chapter 37. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. And they did a musical about it. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Israel, that is Jacob, who is their father, has these 12 sons. The 12 sons end up having 12 families. The 12 families become 12 tribes. The 12 tribes become the nation of Israel. So the sons of of Jacob are literally the first sons of the nation. Now, it says Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, and his other sons hated Joseph because of it. Hey, now one day all the brothers are out grazing the, the flocks. Joseph is not with them. Jacob says, hey, I want you to go check on your brothers if you could do that for me. He does, and you may know this story. We're going to keep going with this. Genesis 37, uh, Joseph is going out to check on his brothers. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Wahahaha. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. As we know, they didn't actually end up killing Joseph. The brothers end up like selling Joseph into slavery, and hopefully in their minds we'll never have to see that little punk spoiled brat again, right? Like, let's just get rid of him. The problem is that now they have to figure out, like, what do we tell dad, Right? Like, we've, we've done something pretty terrible here. Now we have to explain to dad why his favorite son who came out to see us didn't make his way home. So what do they do? Genesis 37, 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe, whether it's your son's robe. Of course, Jacob recognizes it. It is Joseph's coat. And he is devastated. That was his favorite. We don't like to pretend. We don't tell our kids we have favorites. But (laughs) Now, in this, like, story, the situation, the scenario, there's a lot of different offenses, right? They kill the goat to conceal the fact that they sold their brother into slavery. They lie to their father about what happened. They misuse the blood of an animal, which was a serious offense. Like, this was not something that was common practice, obviously. The animal, the blood was reserved for temple practices. And they dishonor their father, which, if you've ever read the Old Testament, is a huge deal as well. So it's this whole long list of offenses. So these 11 brothers all participate, like, collectively in this handful of wrongs. So now, as we look at the Day of Atonement and the ritual of the scapegoat, this whole thing is like a dramatic retelling in parallel to this story. Right? In order for Israel to atone for their sin, rather than having like, the, every person in the, in the tribes and in the nations go through some sort of personal time of confession, they have this communal ceremony in which they, the current sons of Israel, are being reminded of the first sons of Israel their ancestors, the, the 11 who committed this list of offenses, right? And even the, the, these two goats that are used in the ceremony, they represent um, the offenses as well as a way forward in dealing with the offenses. It's kind of like, here's where we were, and now here's how we move forward. 
There's this parallel between the brothers slaughtering the goat and dipping Joseph's coat in the blood and how the priests currently use the goat of the blood to sprinkle that around the altar and the sanctuary and all this stuff, right? So the brothers kill the goat to cover their sin, but also in the killing of the goat and the lying and the dishonoring their father and the hating of their brother, they're committing sin. So the goat pays the price for their offense and the goat also covers their offense, even if it was in a deceptive way. So this ritual slaughtering of the first goat serves as a way to recall both the offense and the covering of the offenses of the first sons. The second goat, the escaping goat, is it's kind of like the, the, the way forward. It's the next step. Rather than deceitfully placing their wrongs on the goat and using the goat to cover up their actions like the first sons did, these current sons are openly and corporately confessing their sins, symbolically placing their sins on the goat and then having the goat led away from them. Now, there's a ton of stuff surrounding and connected to this. We don't have time for it today. Um, but this whole thing, this whole, this whole thing, the Day of Atonement, the sin offering goat for God, the other goat for wilderness for Azazel, the transferring of the sins onto the goat and sending it into the wilderness, this whole thing is an annual ceremony. It happened every year, which might beg the question, is it really working? <laughs> like, we have to keep doing this? Like, this hasn't, like, really solved the problem, has it? We just keep carrying it over till the, till the next thing. Now, after hearing all of this, there's a fairly obvious, like, parallel here for the scapegoat, right? The scapegoat is the one who takes on the sins of the people. And, and so naturally we have this thought that this ritual is like this foreshadowing of, of the coming of Christ, is the coming of Jesus. The Bible never states it directly. The Bible never says that Jesus is the scapegoat. But there are a couple different passages that we point to to make this connection. John chapter 129. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God. Obviously the first inconsistency is that was a goat, this is a lamb. There's a difference. Um, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does the escape goat do? Takes on the sin of the people. Notice right here, by the way, sin in this line is singular. The Lamb of God takes away the sin, not sins. So in some way, it seems to be like collective. Maybe there's this group dynamic to it, kind of how the goat took away the sin of the people of Israel. Second Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the thought is that God sent God's one and only Son to take our sin through Jesus and the cross, our sin is atoned for, and the reason that God sent Jesus was because the offering of the goats didn't really work long term, the blood of the goats didn't really work, the sending away of the goat didn't fully deal with the sin. So there had to be like a way to handle this. There had to be like this perfect blameless sacrifice offered to God in order to deal fully with the sin. Now, on one hand, like I get it. I, I understand that. That's like what, what we've been taught. But on the other hand, I, I kind of don't sometimes. I kind of don't sometimes. And if I could... If I could be like really honest and, and vulnerable here, 
for a minute. Like, I've always kind of wrestled with the idea that the God who is love would sacrifice his own son in order to offer me redemption. Because doesn't that seem kind of like contrary? The killing of his son is like perpetuating this kind of violence, but yet he's supposed to be the God who is love. Well, and I understand that the response is normally like, well, yeah, but that's how we know how great God's love is. God's love is so great that God was willing to sacrifice his son on our behalf. But I, I kind of wrestle with that too. Because if you think about it for a second, at least to me, it raises like a whole bunch of other questions. It raises a whole bunch of like kind of weird questions like what the, the God of the universe isn't able or willing to forgive, isn't strong enough to forgive me without killing someone or something else? Or like, if God is holy and righteous and our sin is the opposite of that, our sin is kind of the enemy of that, doesn't it seem a bit weird that we are told to love our enemies and yet God pours out God's holy wrath on his? Or if God and Jesus are one and they are in the Trinity together, can one member of the Trinity bring harm to another member in the Trinity if it's for the sake of good? Does that make sense? Can God be angry at God's self? Does God's own blood appease God's wrath? And you may have the thought, well, no, 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 the sacrifice wasn't maybe about appeasing God's wrath. It was about like, the sacrifice was like Jesus being willing to pay the price for our sins. He was a willing and loving sacrifice. Okay, sure. But also like, if someone had to pay a price for something I did in order for me to receive forgiveness, is it, is it really forgiveness? Because I thought forgiveness was like when you let go of something. I thought forgiveness was when the, the debt was like let go, that, that the offense was released, right? Do you see what I mean? So. Like, I've been wrestling with this stuff for a long time. I hope I'm not alone in my wrestling. Like, there's a lot that I'm thinking through and trying to process and understand. And sometimes I get it, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, I, I want to look a little bit closer at the connection between the, the ritual of scapegoat, the origins in the story of Joseph, and this idea of Jesus of scapegoat, because I think there's some stuff in here that's worth being mindful of. Some of this may cause you to wrestle more. Some of this may help you in your wrestling, depending on where you're at with some things. But it's definitely worth being mindful of. In the ritual of the scapegoat, the sin of the people is placed on the goat. Then the goat is released into the wilderness as a symbol of their sin being taken away. Right? Again, that's all we're kind of told about like, where this thing ends up. It's just released. What we have to remember is this connection to the story of Joseph. If we think about the story of Joseph as a whole, Joseph is essentially a scapegoat for his brothers, right? The term and the idea stems from the idea that the brothers used the blood of the goat to cover their sins and to take the blame for their sins. But the larger narrative of the story of Joseph is that Joseph himself becomes a scapegoat. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, and all the other brothers 
hated him for it. And because of their hatred, when given the opportunity, rather than dealing with the sin of their own hatred, they placed their hatred upon him. And the result was that he was sold into slavery, he was sent away, he bore the weight of their sins, was sent into the wilderness of slavery. He becomes the picture of the scapegoat. Now, although the details concerning the ritual kind of like end with just like setting it free, we do have the rest of the story of Joseph, which might be why there, there weren't like further details about about this because the people participating in the ritual would have been aware of the story. They would have known all this. That's their history. That's their lineage. So what happens in Joseph's story after he's sold into slavery? He's sent into slavery. He ends up at Potiphar's house where he's falsely accused of attempting to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He's put into prison because of it. He's in prison for a while. He eventually gets the chance to help out uh, and interpret the dreams of the king's baker and the king's cupbearer. He helps them out. And this is like the hyper, hyper, hyper abbreviated story here. But he helps them out. And then uh, he says this to the cupbearer, Genesis 40. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here... I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Joseph is like innocent through this whole thing. He's this innocent victim. The cupbearer is restored to his position. He then completely forgets about what Joseph asked him to do. Joseph stays in prison for two more years. He eventually, through a, a series of events, finds himself second in command to Pharaoh. There's this devastating famine in the land. The famine brings everybody to Egypt, including his family. His whole family ends up in Egypt. Then Jacob, his father, dies. All of the brothers then begin to get worried about what Joseph might do to them, that he might like, try to exact some sort of vengeance, that he will make them pay the price for what they did against him. Genesis 50, you can see the worry here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servant of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. The brothers eventually come before Joseph. They're unsure of what to expect, still a bit fearful, hopefully that these words will affect Joseph's heart. They're worried that because they've put their sins on Joseph, he's going to retaliate in exact vengeance. Watch what Joseph says. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph, the one who was like, kind of playing this role of the scapegoat, sent into the wilderness of, in, in, in slavery. 
as an innocent victim. As an innocent victim, he suffers the betrayal of his brothers. He suffers false accusations and imprisonments. He suffers many years in prison. And never once does he respond with anger or outrage or violence in attempt to redeem the situation. He doesn't continue the cycle of scapegoating and blaming others. He doesn't take the wrong that's been done to him and pour that out onto somebody else. And even when he is in a position of power to make them pay for what they did, how does he respond? With forgiveness. I will provide for you and your ancestors. He takes everything that was placed upon him, all the pain, all of the suffering, and then he offers forgiveness in return. In the ritual of the scapegoat, the nation of Israel is being reminded of the actions of the firstborn sons, of the first sons of the nation, which that story, that story is the first time in the history of the people that forgiveness is sought and forgiveness is granted for their offenses without any blood being shed. Now, some of the early church fathers believe that Joseph was a foreshadowing of Christ. Like, for example, Tertullian in the late 100 CEs, right? You're talking like within 100 years of the life of Jesus. He writes this, Joseph, likewise, was a type of Christ. He suffered persecution for the cause of God from his brethren, as Christ did from his brethren. This is a guy who's like, still within kind of the first century time frame is picking up on this. So how does Joseph, Joseph's life foreshadow the life of Jesus? Well, what did John say? John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus becomes the scapegoat. As this innocent and blameless victim, he suffers the betrayal of his people. He suffers the betrayal of Judas. He suffers being arrested and falsely accused. He suffers the blame of both the church and the state. He suffers through the pain of being beaten and whipped and spat upon, upon uh, on his way to the cross. He suffers the excruciating pain of being nailed to a board, of being executed on the cross. And yet he never responds with outrage or violence to redeem the situation. He doesn't continue the cycle of scapegoating or blaming others. He doesn't take what was poured onto him and pour it out onto somebody else. And even though he has more than enough power, he continually refrained from violence and practiced this kind of passive resistance. Think about the night he was arrested. You know the story. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and the mob comes to arrest them because he's been betrayed by Judas. And Peter pulls out the sword, and he chops off the ear of the high priest. What does Jesus do? He heals the ear of the high priest, and then he says this, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? He says, put the sword away. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword, which is to say that violence does not bring peace. Violence only brings more violence. And then he says to Peter, yeah, I could retaliate. I could make them pay. I could continue the cycle of violence, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to put an end to this whole thing. I'm here to offer something radically different. 
And then what does Jesus, the scapegoat, say as he's enduring the pain and suffering on the cross? What does Jesus, the innocent victim, say? The lamb who took upon himself the sin of the world. What does he say as he's nailed to a board to die for the sins that he did not commit? Luke. Nope. I sent the wrong one. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Joseph, who is blameless, suffers the sins of his brothers. He endures this great suffering, and he offers forgiveness in return. Jesus, who is blameless, suffers the sin of the world. He endures this profound pain and suffering, and through his suffering on the, tr- on the cross, transforms that pain into something beautiful. He transforms it into love and forgiveness. What if the cross isn't about God punishing Jesus for my sin? What if the cross is about revealing the lie of scapegoating? About revealing that if sin is dealt with in any other way other than forgiveness, it's not really dealt with. What if Jesus on the cross isn't an act of God's redemptive violence? What if Jesus on the cross is a picture of redemptive suffering? Because violence doesn't save, does it? Violence only destroys. So what if Jesus on the cross is teaching us how to replace our understanding of redemptive violence with God's way of redemptive violence? suffering, that this is what it looks like to transform pain into forgiveness? What if Jesus on the cross is showing us this tension that we have to learn to live within, that we learn how to face our sin, that we learn how to hold that pain, and through Christ and through the suffering are able to transform all of that into love and forgiveness that we can offer others the same way he did. Jesus accepted the role of the scapegoat. He took upon himself the sin of the world. He took upon himself the suffering and pain of that sin. And he said, Father, forgive them. If the scapegoat ritual is based on Joseph, and Joseph transformed his suffering into forgiveness, and Joseph is a type or a foreshadowing of Christ, who is an innocent victim who suffered the pain of sin and in his last moments used those last moments to offer forgiveness rather than condemnation. Doesn't this seem to be a more fitting picture of the God who is love? That the God who is love would not need to kill someone or something, let alone his one and only son, in order to love and forgive me. Doesn't it seem more fitting that the God who is love would offer himself as an example of what it looks like to transform pain and suffering, to transform the pain and suffering of all of humanity into the forgiveness for all of humanity?
What if by replacing the myth of redemptive violence with the truth of redemptive suffering, Jesus is not trying to change God's mind about us, but trying to change our mind about God. Well, once again, thank you for spending some time with us. I don't know about you, uh, but I know that I was raised in a church where the word atonement meant specifically uh, what we call penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that um, God is angry about humanity's sin and somebody had to die. And so rather than wiping out all of humanity again, uh, God sent Jesus to die in our place so that we could be forgiven. And over the years, uh, much like Seth described in the message, it, is, it has been, uh, it's been a challenging thing for me, but it's ultimately been a very joyful thing uh, to explore the idea that, um, that it's not necessarily the wrath of a vengeful God uh, being appeased on a cross, but um, you know, maybe it's this act of radical love uh, and showing humanity that the way we've always done things is not only uh, not the only way to do it, but is almost certainly not the best way to do it. Um, so it's been, like I said, simultaneously a comfort and a, a very challenging thing. And we hope maybe it's been that for you as well. Uh, we hope you've got a lot to uh, to think about and to pray about and to to digest this week. And we hope we'll see you back here next week on the Foundry Church Podcast. Have a good one.